Um, tell you what, this, this time of the year, um, and I'm not talking about the weather, even though it is a gorgeous, it's going to be another gorgeous day today. But this time of the year, as much as I love Christmas, and I am a, I'm a Christmas fan, but this time of the year, as we start to get close to Easter, is one of my most favorite spiritual times of the year. Um, I can't help but the POA is doing Messiah again this year. And, and I was in Messiah for many, many years. I was a, I was a Jewish man. I was, I was a drummer boy. I was Jesus at 12. I mean, I, I've done lots of roles in Messiah. I was a, what else was I? I think I was an angel one time. That didn't fit. <laughs> that one didn't take. <laughs> but, um, but those scenes there at the end when they, the music's playing and the people freeze and, and you see the, 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 the images of the cross, and we're going to see some of that in a, in a couple of weeks here at our church. That's just powerful stuff to me because that stuff really happened. Jesus suffered those things and he went through those things. And when I get to Easter, I start to think more than just about him coming out of that grave. That's what, that, that, him coming out of that grave is what, what gave me eternal life. But him dying on that cross is what freed me from sin. And I can't help but start to think about those things starting next Sunday, that Passover and the things that happened that week, the Last Supper, and then all, the garden, and, and then all that followed. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. It, it's, it, it's, it's, very, it, it's very close to my heart, and so you're going to have to suffer and listen to what I have to say. Um, because I, I, I just felt a, this week and next week to, led to, to go that direction. Um, today I really want to talk about uh, some of the, the, how the prophecy was fulfilled. The prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we have this wonderful benefit of coming after the crucifixion, don't we? We, you know, M Mary and Joseph and Peter and James and John, those guys, they didn't have the benefit we have. They were living through this stuff contemporaneously. They saw the dark day. They saw the Romans come and arrest Jesus. They saw all that stuff, and they didn't see like we do. They didn't see Sunday morning. All they saw was the bad. And, and, and I can't imagine what it was like for those disciples and, and Mary and, and the friends of Jesus to go through that because we live after the fact of his resurrection. And we can understand all the prophecies that were given about Jesus. We can look back and, you know, we've got the distance of time. It gives us some space and we can actually look back at it and say, oh, yeah, I see where prophecy was being fulfilled and Jesus had to do this and this had to happen. All these things had to take place. We have the, the luxury of time. But the disciples, oh, you think about those great men of God, those church fathers, they didn't even understand what they were going through. They didn't understand. Think about this one little prophecy that Jesus made in that last week. He said, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. That didn't, that went over their heads. They, they thought he was talking about the, the, you know, the great temple. The physical structure made of stone. They didn't even understand what he was talking about, that he was talking about himself. And they didn't understand the prophecies. And to be quite honest with you, I don't blame them. I don't think any of us would have been in a much different boat than they were. I think all of us would have been in a panic that day. Following Jesus, this is what I want, want to start talking about today. Think about this. Following Jesus' Jesus's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the apostles except for two... Peter and John, all of them ran away except for those two. Now, we also know what Peter's going to do later on. So really, out of 12, only one is going to go all the way to the cross with Jesus. 
And following his crucifixion, we find them hiding together in an upper room, afraid they would be the next target of the Jewish authorities. Jesus had previously told them what to expect. He told them everything that was going to happen. And they had heard the prophecies. They, every single one of them had gone to temple. They had gone to church. They had gone to all the things. They had heard the prophecies preached and spoken and the book read. And they would heard all that stuff, but they did not understand that at that moment they were living in the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And I'll reiterate again, I don't blame them. And I bet you don't either. Because sometimes the prophecy doesn't even sound like it could be real until after it happens. Who of us would have understood those prophecies and thought, oh yeah, well I see what's happening right now. Look at that. It's all taking place. No. Sometimes after the prophecy, we have to have a little span of time to process what is going on. We can look at the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, and he was reading a passage of Scripture, and he was very, very confused about what he was reading. But, of course, God had, had planned all this ahead, and he had Philip show up and meet him and explain to him the, the prophecy that he was reading. And Acts 8 and 35 tells us that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the very prophecy the Ethiopian was reading, Philip preached Jesus to him. So Philip was able to take a prophecy from the Old Testament. In fact, it's one we're going to spend a lot of time on this morning. And he was then able to preach Jesus. And the result was that man's salvation. And he returned to Ethiopia and a thriving church was began in that country. And today I want us to look at that same prophetic passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. And it's, it's beginning in Isaiah 52 going into Isaiah 53. The background of this prophecy, before you go there, Sister Michael, let me, there, there's a, um, I want to go to the background of where Isaiah was. The prophet Isaiah lived from the time of King Uzziah through the kings of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and then he died as a martyr under the king Manasseh. So Isaiah, he lived for a long time during the reign of a bunch of different kings. And it was a time of great trouble in Judah. There had been conflict with the kingdom. There were two kingdoms. Remember, there was Judah and Israel. Judah in the south, Israel in the north, and they were fighting each other. And then Assyria came, and they were the dominant power, and they conquered Israel. They took a lot of, of Judah, and they were knocking on the doors of Jerusalem. And God answered King Hezekiah. Remember, he was one, he was one of the kings that was faithful. And God answered his prayer, and he fulfilled the prophecy. He destroyed Sennacherib's army. In fact, Sennacherib had to flee back to, to his country where he was assassinated. God answered the prayer of Hezekiah, but, but it was a time of a lot of trouble. And there were, there were threats on all sides to Israel and Judah. God's people were threatened all around. And it was during this time of great upheaval that Isaiah prophesied concerning God's plans and promises regarding the people of Israel's future. Many prophets before him had said things about the promised Messiah, But Isaiah comes in in this part we're going to read in a minute, and he adds all of this incredible detail, just incredible detail about what was to come regarding the one who was to come. The Messiah, the anointed one, was going to come. He was coming at some point in the future, and he was going to save his people. 700 years now between Isaiah and the coming of Jesus. So follow along. Let's go to Isaiah 52 and 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. When we say servant right there, he's talking about the coming Messiah. Jesus is the servant that he's talking about. 
as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than that of any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Remember what that sprinkling implies. That was the, the blood offering. The, all, the blood was sprinkled to forgive the sins. And he's, gonna, he's not just going to sprinkle the people of Israel. He's going to sprinkle the nations. So all of us, we Gentiles, we're going to be saved by what's, what we're about to talk about. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now we're in, in chapter 53. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, that when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I'm so thankful he knows what it feels like when I am in sorrow and when I am grieving. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We couldn't even look because of what he looks like. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him. We thought of him, not that word esteem doesn't mean kind of like the same thing we would always say, but we did think of himself, him as stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he, oh gosh, such a powerful passage of scripture. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray, because we have. Anybody ever have gone astray? I, I have. And we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our iniquity was laid on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, not speaking in other words, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We're going to talk about this because this doesn't make sense to our ears. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And last verse. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Remember the two thieves on either side? And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's some powerful, powerful stuff. And think about the detail what Isaiah put in there. There's a lot of stuff that Isaiah went out on the limb, didn't he? I mean, Isaiah's like, I'm, I'm writing some details down, God. I hope it's from you because I'm going to sound like a fool later on. If the Messiah doesn't do all, you know, this is, this is what 
So Isaiah put a lot of stuff in there, and it's, it's very obvious from the text that he is referring to an individual. There is a person that is being described, the coming Messiah. There's only one person in all of human history that fits the description of Isaiah. There's only one person who became that sacrifice and that paid that penalty for our sins when he died on the cross of Calvary, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Before we look more closely at this passage and its fulfillment in Jesus, I want to stress again, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah wrote these words. 700 years. Our weathermen can't get the tornadoes right the night before. For the last two weeks, our weathermen have had tornadoes all around us. And, and I'm, not, I'm not knocking on them. They have a hard job. I'm, I really am not knocking on them. But Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. And this is important because it, this is what that means. Jesus was not surprised by his crucifixion. He wasn't surprised. He came here to do that. Everything from Bethlehem's manger, well, even from, even from the, 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 uh, the angel appearing to Mary, everything was leading up to Jesus Christ being put on a Calvary's cross and having nails driven in his hands and feet. Everything he did was building up to that moment. He was not surprised by the events that surrounded his crucifixion because he was aware of the prophecy. As, 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 a, as God, the God in him was inspiring of that prophecy. He was not surprised by the details of his crucifixion. Nothing happened on that awful Friday that he was like, oh, they didn't put that in there. That one wasn't, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Nothing that happened on that Friday was a shock to Jesus Christ. The fact that they whipped him when they put the spear in his side, when they put nails in his hands, when they laid him down on a cross of woods, none of that was a shock to Jesus. He told his disciples repeatedly what would happen after they arrived in Israel, I mean, in Jerusalem. In Matthew 16 and 21, he said, He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He said that to his disciples. And only one of them stayed all the way to the cross. The accurate fulfillment of a, of a prophecy is a hallmark of God. Isaiah was anointed of God. He prophesied and it happened. He spoke the word and it happened. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He declares in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. In other words, 700 years ago, I'm saying all these things that have not yet been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Only God can do that. Only God could speak on and inspire that man Isaiah and give him that prophecy. The devils and the demons, they can make guesses about the future, but they're going to fail. They might get it wrong, they might get it right every once in a while. We can make guesses about the future. We might get them wrong every once in a while. We get them wrong too, but they're guesses. And because we only make guesses, that is why they're going to be wrong more often than not. But Isaiah was a true prophet. 100% of what he had to say came true. Deuteronomy 18 tells us that anything less than 100% is a false prophet. 
Jesus knew what was going to happen even before he arrived in Jerusalem. And this passage of scripture that we've read sort of has, if you think of it in a poetic sense, it almost, it's like it, got, it has stanzas. The first one, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, is just a summary of the whole prophecy. Through his suffering, he would be the redeeming sacrifice that would bring salvation to all nations. Isaiah 52 and 13, just as a reminder, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. In John 12 and 32, he said that he would draw all men to himself if he was lifted up. Y'all remember that scripture? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Isaiah 52 and 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. His visage was marred. His visage, his appearance, his face, what you look at when you look at him, that was marred beyond any man. The appearance that you would see when you looked at Jesus and while this was going on was damaged and it was broken. He was hurting and he was in pain. His, the physical beatings prior to the crucifixion would have greatly damaged his body. He would have been suffering and he would have been hurting. I, know I've, I don't know if any of you have ever seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, and I've heard people say that it was kind of overdone um, and that maybe it was too much or whatever in its portrayal of the beatings. I, I, I only watched it once. I almost can't watch it again. It, it, it tears at me so. But Mel Gibson did not exaggerate the beatings that Jesus Christ received. The scourging of Jesus Christ was just like what Mel Gibson showed in the movie. It would have been that bad. Maybe it was worse, leaving Jesus' body severely mauled. Isaiah 52 and 15 says, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. That term sprinkle, like I said, that's the blood. That's the blood sacrifice being sprinkled for the atonement of sins. In other words, he's going to redeem all of the nations. The Messiah would redeem the nations, and Paul quotes that specifically to include us Gentiles in Romans 15 and 21. The next stanza, Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, kind of deals with the Messiah being despised. And I'm not going to read it again because I've read it once. But the religious leaders did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. The, the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the high priest, they did not accept Jesus Christ because he did not come in the manner they were expecting. Even some of his own disciples, <clears throat> Judas, even some of his own disciples and followers were confused by the manner in which he came. How could Judas be confused? Judas was with him every day. He heard every... Jesus said, I'm going to be... I'm going to be killed. And yet Judas was upset when he wasn't a different kind of Messiah. Poor old Judas. They were convinced, all of these people, they were convinced that the Messiah was going to come as a conquering king. He was going to throw off the yoke of Rome. He was going to stick a sword in the side of Herod and, and uh, all the Roman soldiers. They, he was just going to destroy them. Jesus was going to come, not Jesus, the Messiah was going to come as a conquering king. He was going to reestablish Israel. He was going to sit on the throne of David, which had been empty. But now he would come, the Messiah, and sit on the throne as a conquering king. But Jesus came in a humble manner, and it confused everybody. It was so confusing that Jesus was humble. Listen, Jesus had been born in the right place, at the right time, in the right lineage. It looks like the right guy. 
maybe he is. He, he fit, listen, I don't know if any of you have done your English in a long time, but I remember, remember who, what, when, where, how. The, the teachers would tell you when you write a story, you answer those questions. Jesus fit the who, the what, the when, the where, and the how. But what he didn't fit was the why. He did not fit the why. Their reasons for why he came or why they thought he would come were so very different from his reason why he came. He remained humble. He stayed humble. He didn't want to be a king. He didn't want to be a governor. He never led and organized anything. Jesus didn't do that. That's not what he did. There were crowds of people. They even at one point wanted to crown him as king. Jesus didn't seek that. He didn't take advantage of any of that, and he tried to avoid public attention when he could. Jesus did not come with the attributes that the people were looking for. Keep that in mind for a second. They were looking for a celebrity, and Jesus was not that. They wanted a strong man. Jesus was not that. They wanted worldly secular liberation. They wanted independence from Rome. And Jesus was not that. And so they were disappointed. They were dis Imagine that. The Messiah has come. He's fitting all of these prophecies, but I'm disappointed. Imagine that for a second. Isaiah specifically points out that the Messiah would not be stately in form or majesty. And he would not be attractive in appearance. But they were still looking for that. They still wanted the king. They wanted someone who would, you know, telegenic and, and could stand in front of people and talk and say things. No, no. His life was going to be hard and there was going to be sorrow and there was going to be grief. He would not be esteemed. And crowds like they always are are fickle. And some of those crowds, some of those people in that crowd who had proclaimed Hosanna on one day were saying crucify him five days later. They now despised Jesus and forsake him. I wonder so many times in some ways if that rejection wasn't worse because in so many ways Jesus just flat out disappointed the people who were looking for a Messiah. They thought he was going to come and mete out earthly justice. That's what they were expecting. And when he didn't do that, the rejection was fierce. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. He was just the Messiah they desperately needed. This isn't part of my message, so I'll give it to you for free. But there have been times in my life when I didn't get the Savior or the salvation I wanted. I didn't get what I wanted, but I did get the Savior and the salvation that I desperately needed. God knows. And that's enough of the free stuff. I'll get back to what y'all paid for. The third and the fourth stanzas of Isaiah 53 4 through 9 describes the suffering the Messiah would endure and then his reaction to it. The physical suffering that Jesus went through included scourgings. He was pierced and crushed just as Isaiah had predicted. And all of it was done in a very public and a very humiliating fashion. There was no effort by anyone involved to humanize the process. No one tried to make it a little easier on Jesus. No one tried to make him bear it a little bit easier. It was all done with the goal to be as brutal as possible. Everything that, G that was done to Jesus was designed to be brutal and to dehumanize him. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would respond with silence as a lamb led to the slaughter. 
And after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was taken to the home of the high priest, and then he was taken to Caiaphas' house, and then later he was taken to the Sanhedrin. He, was, he would not speak to them because he was fulfilling the prophecy that, that, that he would be silent as the lamb led to his slaughter. But then they, they put him on the spot because they asked him, I guess it's a similar sense to being put on, under oath. They put him under oath and they asked him the question, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answered he was, because he was. And the high priest then deemed what he said to be blasphemy and deserving of death. They blindfolded him. And after he was blindfolded, every man in that room spat on him. High priests did this, not their servants. The high priests spat on him. They beat him with their fists and they slapped him while mocking him. They would say, they'd hit him. Somebody would walk up. He's blindfolded. Somebody would walk up and hit him and say, you're, you're the Messiah. Tell me who it was that just hit you. Can you imagine? Our Jesus. Of course, they didn't know what we know. And it was during this time that even Peter denied knowing Jesus when he was questioned. Even Peter, the rock on which the church is going to be built, has now denied Jesus Christ. And Jesus was then taken before the Roman governor Pilate because the Jews could not put anyone to death. They were, they were part of the Roman Empire. Pilate was, a, was the emissary of Rome, and he could do that. So they took him to Pilate. They wanted him to be crucified. And Pilate was quickly able to determine that Jesus was innocent. The, he, he goes before Pilate twice. Both times, Pilate is like, this guy's, he's innocent. And he, was, he quickly realized that, but he was afraid of the people that he was the governor of, and he wanted to appease them. And he tried to pass off the, pass the buck. He sent him over to Herod. Herod just wanted to see him do a miracle, and when he didn't, Herod it was like, you know, you go back to you know, Pilate, and, and everybody along the way is scourging him. I mean, he's getting slapped around, beaten, hit, all, everybody. Herod had his soldiers treat Jesus with contempt. They put a gorgeous robe on him, and then they, they, beat him, they beat on him, and they sent him back to Pilate. And next, Pilate, still Pilate's looking for a way out. Pilate sought to use that custom of, we'll release a prisoner here every year at the Passover. And so he said, well, well, do you want Jesus, or do you want this horrible, horrible Ted Bundy? Who do, you, who do you want me to release? Do you want Jesus, or do you want Ted Bundy? And the crowd started screaming, Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy. Only his name was Barabbas back then. Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. I've got this innocent Jesus. You, you won't. The murderer? Give us, what? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And the people called out over and over for Jesus to be crucified. And some of those, I bet you any amount of money, some of those are the same people who were waving some palm branches a few days before. So next, Pilate thought that scourging Jesus might solve the problem. Maybe I can just make, a, make him suffer really bad, let the public see I'm making him suffer, and then they'll, they'll stop screaming for it. And so he, Pilate ordered him to be scourged. It was unjust and it was cruel, but maybe that would be a way to keep Jesus alive and satisfy the crowd. Scourging, let me tell you what it involves. It's that special whip that had several strands of leather with pieces of rock and pottery shards, maybe even pieces of metal tied to the ends, and it was used to slash into the back of the person being scourged. It would, it would literally tear out hunks of flesh when you would be scourged. The, 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 the pieces of bone and metal and, and rock that were attached to the end of that would dig into the flesh, and then when the, the person whipping would pull it, it would rip out pieces of flesh. I talked about this last year in that sermon I preached on the best day ever, but we need to be reminded of what Jesus went through. 
Scourging alone would almost be enough to kill a man because it could actually lacerate the back and expose the internal organs. That's how terrible scourging was. And then those soldiers, they wove a crown of thorns and they put it on Jesus' head and they put a purple robe on him. They started mocking him as the king of the Jews and they began hitting him in the face. Pilate, now that Jesus has been just, his visage is marred beyond that of any man, right? It's what Isaiah said. Pilate brings him out and he says, he says this, you know, you, now that you see him and, and you see that he's not, your, not the king of the Jews, no matter what he says, are y'all done with him? Can I let him go? Jesus, bloody and beaten, and, and, and Pilate's looking for a reason to let him go. But the crowd cried out more cruelly, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate goes back and talks to Jesus one last time, finds him innocent again. But the crowd was almost rioting outside. And so Pilate did that act for which he's famous, right? He washed his hands. He said, I wash my hands of the blood of this just man. He knew Jesus was innocent. And then he turned Jesus over to be crucified. I believe Pilate was still guilty, though, because he knew. And he was in a position to know. But he gave in to fear, and he sent Jesus to his death. Can't really blame Pilate too much, really everything was happening according to the prophecy that had to be fulfilled the soldiers then took Jesus and they stripped him they put a scarlet robe upon him once more and once again they mocked him they spat upon him and they beat him again before leading him away to be crucified on Golgotha's hill Jesus had already lost so much blood that he was weak and he fell as he tried to carry that cross and a man Siren of uh, Simon of the Cyrenes was compelled by the guard to carry that cross for Jesus. I think I said this last year when I was talking about the best day ever, but of all the characters in the Bible, that's the one I wish I could have been. Can you imagine being asked to carry Jesus' cross? Being there on that Friday, that, that dark, dark, awful Friday, and you, Jesus is right there, and you're, you get to carry his cross? I can't imagine a greater, greater job in the entire Bible than to carry Jesus' cross. And at Golgotha, they laid Jesus on that cross, and they nailed spikes through his hands and his feet, and then they lifted up the cross, and they dropped it into its resting place with a terrible thud. And there Jesus hung between two thieves. His visage was now marred beyond that of any man. It was horrific. It was horrifying. There was nothing about him that anybody in this room would have wanted to look at. There's nothing about him that we would call beautiful. We sing that song, oh, what a savior, isn't he wonderful? This was awful. Nothing in this was beautiful. It was just the broken lamb of God dying for the sake of the sins of mankind. Dying for my sins and dying for your sins. And while on the cross, other predictions, other prophecies from other prophets were fulfilled. The soldiers cast lot for his clothes, Psalms 22 and 18. The people jeered and mocked him in the same way, Psalms 22, 8 through 7. Even Jesus' prophecy that no one could take his life except he lay it down was fulfilled when he said, it is finished, and he let the Spirit go. They didn't take his life, he gave it. Crucifixion is a slow and a painful death. And it can last one to three days. That word that, that, that's used in Isaiah about being crushed is really a good way to describe how he was slowly suffocating from the weight of his own body on the cross. 
but Jesus did it himself. He laid down his own life. They did not take it after about six hours when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In order to speed the death of those being crucified, the soldiers oftentimes would break the legs of the person. Like They'd been hanging there three days or two days, and they were... To speed up the process, they'd just go ahead and break their legs so that you really couldn't push yourself up to get breath anymore. If they broke your legs, you would just, you would asphyxiate. So that's what they would often do. So the soldiers broke the legs of the two thieves, but they found that Jesus was already dead and they didn't break his. You know what? That fulfilled a a prophecy. Psalms 34 and 20 said, not a bone in the Messiah's body would be broken. And Jesus gave up his spirit and never had to have a bone broken. They wanted to make sure, though, and so they pierced his side, also fulfilling prophecy. And blood and water poured out. Jesus was stricken. He was afflicted. He was scourged. He was crushed. He was pierced, just as Isaiah had said. Every detail that Isaiah had gone into in, verse, in chapter 52 and 53 had come to pass. Every single thing that Isaiah said had happened. However, the most important aspect of Isaiah's prophecy, and the one that maybe means more to us in a self-interested sense at least, is why the Messiah would undergo those things. It was for our sake that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. It was for our healing that he was chastened and endured those stripes. Our iniquity fell on him. Jesus became the sin sacrifice. The spotless lamb of God, once and forever, he paid the price. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He paid the price. And it was his atonement that healed us from the judgment that follows our sin. See, sin is followed by a price, and it's the judgment. But he healed us from the judgment of God. Isaiah 53 53 and 8 adds that the Messiah would have his grave assigned with wicked men, but a rich man came and offered him his tomb. Jesus should have, considering the manner he was killed, considering the manner of his execution, he was a pauper, he was penniless, he should have been buried with all the the criminals and everybody that was, that's where he should have been, just a mass grave almost. But the Bible says he's not going to be buried like that. And Joseph of Arimathea came and offered his tomb for Jesus to be buried in. He should have been buried like those two thieves he was in between, but but no. Jesus was never accused of either violence or lying. And he fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Messiah. He fulfilled each and every one. The final verses of this passage reinforce the reasons why the Messiah would undergo this suffering and proclaim that what he would do would be sufficient. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. 
by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. That's us. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You are a transgressor. Not trying to be mean to you. Not trying to bust your bubble today. I am a transgressor. All of us in this room are transgressors, and he interceded for us. It sounds odd to our ears, doesn't it? That the Lord would be pleased to crush his servant. Think about that. The Lord would be pleased to crush Jesus. But this is because so many people think of the crucifixion only as the tragedy. We only think of, of the, the blood, and, the, and, and we got to keep that in mind. We only think of the, the horror show. And while those elements of suffering are in it and, and the reasons it had to happen, all of that, it is tragic in some ways. But Jesus was both God and man. He felt the pain of the cross. Every cruel act injured him. He prayed in the garden. We have his own words. Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, if you won't, then your will be done. He prayed that very prayer. He prayed that in the garden. Yet he walked the road willingly. And more than willingly, he walked it joyfully. He walked it joyfully. Because we can see also the Lord's purpose in everything that happened. And we can see that Jesus' willingness to go through it is anything but tragic. His willingness was anything but tragic. It was the ultimate triumph of heaven. Jesus died as a guilt offering. His death was the payment of the price of our sin by a substitute. He slid in there and took our spot. I should have been the one up on the cross, dying for my own sin. And he got up there and said, nope, you don't have to, Chris. I'm doing it for you. Jesus died as our guilt offering. He was the substitute for us. We deserved to die for our sins, but he bore our sins upon himself and died in our place. I deserved everything that happened to Jesus on Calvary. I deserved it. I have sinned. I have done horrible things in my life. I have disappointed people. I have hurt people. I have hurt myself. I have hurt God. I have denied God. I have done horrible things. I deserve everything on Calvary's cross. But the innocent man, Jesus Christ, said, No, Chris, I'm doing that for you. He took our place. And in doing so, he satisfied the demands of righteousness and justice for all time. Forever and ever, he satisfied it. Everyone who had never even been born, he died for your sins. When I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. If you really want to understand his love for you, think about the worst thing you ever did, the worst moment in your life, the thing you're the least proud of that you would never want anybody else to know. That is the moment he died for you. He loved you so much at that moment, at your worst moment, that is the moment he said, I still love you so much, I'm going to die for you. That humbles me. That, that, that knocks me to the floor because he loved me so much even at my worst. He satisfied forever 
those demands of righteousness and justice, and he justified us before God. Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin. He was a man unacquainted with sin. He was acquainted with sorrow and grief, but he knew not sin. But when he got on that cross, all of the sin from Adam and Eve's fall to the last man who ever lives, everything was piled on the cross. From olden days, from Adam, everything was pushed forward to the cross. And from the last man that will ever live, everything was pushed back to the cross. And Jesus died for every sin of every man, woman, and child forever and ever on that one moment. That's when he did it. And praise God that he did it. Praise God that he did it. The sacrifice was accepted. The sacrifice was accepted. Remember how if it wasn't done properly in the Old Testament, the priest could die and fall flat on the ground? They'd have to pull him out with that rope. This sacrifice was accepted. Sins are gone. Sins are gone. We're forgiven. The promise for the future was made sure. The Messiah was going to rise up in three days and he was going to see all of us. And since a guilt offering is normally put to death, the only way that could happen was for the guilt offering to die. But then Jesus rose on the third day. And we who believe in him and are his followers are his offspring. We're adopted into his family. We will prosper with him in the future. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, of Isaiah 53, period, full stop. Jesus was not caught unaware by anything surrounding his crucifixion, nor was he a victim. He knew what would happen in advance, and he looked forward to what it would accomplish. Can you imagine? You know the future. You know how horrible it's going to be, and you're looking forward to it. And here's why. Hebrews 12 and 2 says it exactly. Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him. Jesus could see the joy of his children redeemed on the other side of Calvary. He was standing over here, okay? Well, I guess it's, I should, he was standing over here. Calvary's right here and all of its horror, all the terrible things of Calvary. And we're over here redeemed and free. Standing over here, he could see through the horror of Calvary and see us free. That was his joy. That was the joy that Jesus Christ experienced. He could see you and me living happy and free with freedom purchased by Calvary. The prophets of the Old Testament could look forward to what the Messiah, the righteous one, was going to do when he came for the people of Israel. But we can look back on what he has already done. And looking back at that assures us of our future if we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know this is our first service, uh, and, and everybody in here has been living for the Lord for a very long time. Everybody in here, we're, we're, this is the adult class, right? But I must ask you, where do you stand with him this morning? Has that payment, that payment of Calvary, has that payment been applied to your life so that you stand forgiven before God? If so, Jesus' death brings you the joy of a firm hope, a grasp on the future. You are assured of a place in heaven with him. But if we have not accepted that payment at Calvary, then we stand in danger of judgment. 
Today is the day to place your trust and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one last question I want you to ponder today as you think about your own salvation. Think about his love. Think about his love for you. Nothing else could have held him to that tree. Those nails didn't hold him to that tree. That none of that held him to the tree. None of that held him on the cross, but it was his love for you and me, for everyone in this room, for everyone who's lived after him, who lived before him, for all the sins of mankind. He loved us more than he hated our sin. And he was willing to come as a suffering savior to die for our sins and give us new life. Can we just rejoice for a few minutes? Can we just, just worship him for the sacrifice of Calvary? Lord, we worship you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Oh, thank you for Calvary, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for us, God. Thank you for giving your very life, laying it down for us who were sinners, but you loved us so much. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're, we're entering the, the next Sunday's Passover. I mean, next Sunday's Palm Sunday and the next Sunday's Easter. I encourage you these next two weeks, start reading some of those passages Go through the things that Jesus went through. Read that stuff. Let, let it, and every time you read it, don't read it for the, it's not supposed to be, it's not like a horror flick where we're just waiting with eyes open what's going to be the next horrible thing inflicted on Jesus. But every one of those things is, is his love letter to us. All the things that he did was because he loved us. And let it renew your love for him. They've got a beautiful song we're going to sing. Think about the cross. Think about his, his, his sacrifice. You don't have to just do it at Easter, but this is a particularly good time of the year to think about it. But think about what he has done for us and his love for us.